Heavenly Father, we ask now that these words, your words, would come alive for us today, that they would reassure us, compel us, move us towards love, towards Jesus, towards abiding in you, and bearing fruit. Show us what that looks like in our lives today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, in this passage, you have two big imperatives. You might say one is the essence of the Christian life, and you might say one is the goal or the mission of the Christian life. The essence of the Christian life could be described as being in Christ, abiding, remaining, dwelling, being rooted, being in Jesus, dwelling in Jesus, remaining in Jesus. And the goal of the Christian life is that we would bear much fruit. The goal is the mission. The point of your life is that you would go and bear fruit. That's verse 16. Okay. So in one sense, the most important thing in your life is to stay or remain in Jesus. And on the other hand, the most important thing is that you go and bear fruit. Thus, the title on your bulletin today, Stay Put and Get Going. Sounds like a paradox, but the two go hand in hand because, as we read, on the one hand, there is no such thing as a Christian who abides in Jesus, has a personal relationship with Jesus, who does not bear any fruit. That is to say, they take no part in the mission of Jesus, or they don't manifest the kind of love that Jesus has shown to them. They don't give of themselves, laying aside their rights and their status and their pride for the sake of another, as Jesus did for us. Okay, now, there's no Christian on earth today who is perfect at this, but there's no such thing as a branch connected to a vine receiving the life of the vine for the purpose of bearing the fruit of that vine who bears no fruit. There is something in that branch that is blocking or refusing the will and desires of the vine, if that's the case. The point of the vine is to bear fruit. The vine produces fruit through the branches. Any Christian who claims to be a branch, who abides in Jesus Christ but bears no fruit, has missed the point. And those branches are cut off. And we'll, we'll get into more what that means in a little bit. But Christianity cannot be boiled down to a holy huddle. The purpose of a fruit-bearing vine is the fruit. That is Jesus' purpose for you and me to bear his fruit, to produce fruit. By the same token, on the other hand, there is no such thing as a Christian who bears fruit but does not abide in Jesus, does not stay in Jesus. The, there's, he says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain, abide in me. That's verse four. If you try to produce fruit without abiding in Jesus, what you'll experience will be legalistic, even enslaving, and only produce a kind of superiority complex. The Christian life is both. You must remain connected to the vine, and you must go and bear fruit. So what does that actually look like in real life? And I think a vine is a pretty brilliant metaphor, actually. It's a good picture, because what do you know about vines? You know, they get rooted but they also spread, they multiply, they creep, they reach, right? I've never 
handled or, or tried to uh, grow grapevines before. Some of you probably have. I'm no viticulturist, uh, but I've handled blackberries, right? Anybody here ever deal with blackberry bushes, blackberry vines? You know, what do you know about blackberries? Like, if you don't stay on top of them, they take over, right? And they hurt. I mean, they've got thorns, and so you've, you've got to stay on it. And pruning or cutting black or uprooting blackberries, it's difficult because as much as they reach out and they reach across the Tommy Thompson Trail and pop your bike tires, or, you know, as much as they spread, they also are anchored. They're rooted. They're really hard to get rid of and uproot. So that's why a lot of people use chemicals, right? We're not going to go into that. Um, vines. They move, they spread, they multiply, and they're rooted. They stay put. They're hard to dig up. And I think that's a very effective picture of what God intends for his people and for his church, minus the thorns. Okay, we're talking about something good moving out, fruitfulness moving out, right? But when he says, stay connected or abide or remain in me and, go in, and also go and bear fruit, the vine is rooted, but it also goes out. It multiplies. So I want to talk about four questions or, or observations that this raises that we're going to boil this down to today. One, what is the fruit that we're supposed to bear? Two, how do we bear fruit? Three, what's the result? And four, the key that makes it all possible. So what's the fruit? How are we to bear fruit? What's the result? and the key that makes it all possible. Okay, so what is the fruit that Jesus is talking about? Now, there are a lot of ways to answer this question just by looking at Scripture. Uh, from the text alone, we get kind of two dominant things that we see. We see, one, that we would love one another as Christ has loved us. Laying down our lives for one another. That was a big theme last week. As he's in the upper room washing his disciples' feet, it's a picture of surrendering your pride, your identity, your name, your status, laying it aside and taking on the dirt of those you love onto yourself as you wash their feet with the, the garment of a servant, right? That's, that's what Jesus does for us on the cross. That's a self-giving love. And, the, and he calls us to bear fruit by loving each other, loving others that way, the way that he has loved us. And the other thing that this passage specifically points to is prayer. That being a fruit-bearing branch that is anchored to the vine, we're to ask whatever we would ask for in the Father's name, in Jesus' name, he will give us. Okay, so what does that look like? What does it look like to pray in Jesus' name? And I don't have all the answers for you today. We're going to have to dig for that one a little bit. But what does that really look like? Some would say bearing fruit means Winning converts for Jesus, or making disciples, fulfilling the Great Commission, that's fruit-bearing. And that's, that's all true. Others would point to the passages about the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The only reason I know those is because my kids sing the song in preschool a lot. Um, I didn't sit down and memorize it, in other words, but probably should. Uh, so, so these are all correct answers. These are all attributes of what it is to be a fruit-bearing human being, to be on mission with Jesus, to be telling people about Jesus, to be making disciples of Jesus, to be loving one another. But, 
but what's the big picture? And there's a, there's, these are all good descriptors of what it is to bear fruit for God, but there's kind of a big umbrella picture as well. And it starts in the very first chapter of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, 28, the very first thing God ever is recorded to have spoken to human beings. Do you know what it is? 128, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, right? Bear fruit, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Bear fruit and go out. It's it's the exact same thing that Jesus is now telling his disciples to do. Once again, Jesus is talking. What he's talking about is the point of human existence from the very beginning. But don't overlook the first part. God blessed them. God blessed them and then said, go bear fruit, be fruitful, multiply. Go and fill the earth with God's blessing and abundance. Tame the chaotic wilderness and bring order to it. That's what gardening is all about. That's why chapter 2, the picture we get, God puts them in a garden and he says, feast on the fruit that I've given you. God blessed them. And then he tells them to essentially expand the borders of this garden outward. What you've seen God do in taming the chaotic waters in the darkness, bringing light, bringing order, bringing up a space that can cultivate life, and then filling that space with life, right? Reversing the Chaos and void, the the formlessness and void. God brings order and he brings life instead. Now he says, take what I've done and make it fruitful and garden. Bring order where there's chaos. Bring life where there's hostility to life. This is bearing fruit. And whenever the Jews celebrate the Sabbath, they go into it with a ceremony on Friday night called the Kaddush or the Shabbat, they'll call it that. Uh, And part of that ceremony is about remembering God's finished work on the seventh day of creation where he rested in everything he'd done and it reminds us to rest in his goodness, his blessing, his abundance. And so you're supposed to take a cup of wine, you're supposed to fill it absolutely full to the brim, representing the goodness of God's blessing and abundance with which he has blessed us with the fruit of the vine that we've cultivated now, recognizing that he provides this blessing, and then you're to share it, multiply it. You pass it around and everyone drinks from the cup, representing his blessing and abundance. And it's a picture, I believe, of this command. I've blessed you, enjoy it, be fruitful, and pass it around. Multiply it. Share the abundance. Create a space. So, so in other words, bearing fruit does look like telling people about Jesus. Bearing fruit does look like winning converts. Bearing fruit does look like making disciples. But it also looks like what you do in the workforce every day of the week. How you go about your job 
can be a fruit-bearing activity if it's using the materials of creation that God has given you and is fruitfully blessing human beings and creating a way to promote and sustain life. That's fruit-bearing. And all of our work, all of our actions have been thrown off or tainted by the curse of sin and the fall and have become about taking for ourselves instead of laying down our lives. Getting our own hands dirty for one another, instead it's been around about looking down on others who will get their hands dirty and serve us. Climbing the ladder, so to speak. It's a backwards picture of ruling the earth and subduing it than what Jesus represents. So God blessed them and said, bear fruit and multiply it. Share the wine. Now Jesus says, uh, when you abide in God's goodness and blessing, you're able to share it. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. Serving, laying aside that status, etc. Psalm 80 7 through 11, and then verse 14 through 17 says this, Restore us, God Almighty. Make your face shine on, on us that we may be saved. You transplanted a vine from Egypt. Okay, what's the vine? Israel, the people of Israel, right? You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Okay, it took root. It abides. It remains. And it filled the land. Go and bear fruit. How far did this vine that God planted fill the earth? It says the mountains were covered with its shade. The, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reach as far as the sea. Its shoots as far as the river. And he's probably talking about the reign of King David and King Solomon. The golden age of Israel that had such an influence on all the nations of the world. Israel were for probably their only real time in history, being everything that God had called them to be, the vine that would go out and spread outward the garden throughout the whole creation, the fruit, right? And bring it to all the nations. Verse 14 says, Return to us, God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root in your right hand, uh, the root that your right hand is planted the sun you have raised up for yourself, your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the vine. The son of man you have raised up for yourself. And is it any wonder that the, the term that Jesus most uses to refer to himself is the words, the son of man. Other people call him Messiah, son of God, um, king of Israel. And he'll say, well, you say those things, or yeah, you're correct, but the term he calls himself is the son of man. And now he calls himself the vine, which means that Jesus is now the true Israel. He is doing what Israel were called to do. He's taking the fruitfulness, the abundance, the blessing, and it's going out once again because the old vine was cut down. It was cut off. What happened? This whole chapter is about returning home. This whole chapter is about bringing God's creation back to the garden. 
In Jesus, God is returning his people to a place of abundance and blessing through the cross and resurrection and by the work of the Holy Spirit. We're free from the curse of our sin through the forgiveness of sins, and we've been given new life through his resurrection. Now the vine of the vineyard, the garden, spreads once more, but only through the fruitfulness of the branches. If you're connected to his life, his love, and his word, you will bear fruit. So what about verse 2 where he says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. What about verse 6? It says, If you remain in me, you are like a branch that is... If you do not remain in me, excuse me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. And it sounds like he's quoting Psalm 80, what we just read here. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. You see, it kind of sounds like Jesus is saying here, it's, it's a works for salvation situation. Can you lose your salvation? If you don't produce enough good fruit or good works, or if I sin too much, there's some feedback happening here. If I sin too much, will God cut me off? Will he reject me? Is it once saved, always saved, and, and so on? And to answer this question, uh, you've got to look at the immediate context. For one, there's Judas, who had just betrayed Jesus. Here is someone who was like a branch attached to Jesus, but then he detached himself. He went out and he betrayed Jesus. Or, at the time of John's writings, perhaps what he's referring to, the church was going under a rash of persecution by the, Jew, the Jewish authorities and also by apostate Christians who denounced the gospel of Jesus Christ and adopted some form of Gnosticism and began to deceive and pull away Christians from their belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in the book of 1 John, John is writing very heavily towards these people, and those are the words he uses, these people who have rebelled and rejected Jesus are cut off. Okay. And then there's the people of Israel themselves. Why did God cut off the vine of Israel? And in Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, two verse 21 through 23, he says, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. How can you say, I am not defiled, I have not run after the bales? See how you have behaved in the valley, consider what you've done. And the whole picture in this chapter is his people have become like a prostitute who has given herself to other lovers instead of her husband. So the conclusion I would come to is this, you cannot lose your salvation, but you can turn away from it. You can reject it. And now we get into debates and, and issues that a lot of people, you know, fuss over, whether it's predestination or, you know, a Calvinist would say, well, if they turn against Jesus, they never really were saved in the first place. And the Arminians would say, no, no, it's free will. You can, you can reject Jesus. And I'm not here to debate any of that stuff. But the core is this. If you believe in Jesus, you are eternally secure. If you don't believe... You're not. 
And we tend to treat salvation like a kind of magic trick or a talisman. Just pray the sinner's prayer. Just get baptized and you're in. The root issue is, do you believe Jesus? Do you believe the gospel or not? In each of these cases, whether we're talking about Judas, whether we're talking about the apostate Christians in 1 John, or whether we're talking about the nation of Israel, the reason God specifically cites for cutting them off is not because they screwed up one too many times. He rejects them because they do not believe. They have rejected him. Or as Dr. Michael Heiser puts it, you cannot lose through moral imperfection that which you cannot gain through moral perfection. Salvation has never been about good works in the first place. You can't gain salvation through good works. Therefore, you can't lose it through sin. Now, we all struggle with sin, but the root issue is belief. Or more specifically, what vine have you attached yourself to? And we might say, well, does that mean that you can like say, okay, I'm a Christian, now I believe in Jesus, I'm going to go do whatever I want? Well, Paul says no in Romans 6, right? Because he says, don't you know that anyone who's been baptized into Christ is dead? Like, you died. You put that old self to death. You were raised in a new life as a brand new creation in conformity with Jesus Christ. So, yes, we struggle with sin. Our desire is not to sin because God has befriended us. Uh, we struggle with doubt. That's not what we mean when we say, do you believe or not? It's not a matter of whether you wrestle with doubt. Everyone wrestles with doubt. The question is, who do you put your trust in? Do you trust the gospel of Jesus Christ or not? Do you believe? Because there are no Baal worshipers in heaven. Okay? There's no one who worships Baal in heaven. There are, there's no one who at one point said they worshiped Jesus and then decided to go worship another god in heaven. And there's no one in the kingdom of Jesus Christ who does not believe Jesus is the king. So you can be a Christian and then decide, I no longer believe. There's no one who denounced Jesus who will be in heaven. Okay? On the other hand, Paul writes that Israel, in Romans 11, he says Israel could be grafted back in if they repent and turn again and come to him and believe. So that's the root issue. It's not about whether you're doing good enough, whether you're compelled enough to be active enough in your church or doing good works or bearing fruit. That's not the point. The point is, what are you rooted in? What are you anchored in? So how, then, are we supposed to bear fruit? That was a bit of a rabbit trail, but we talked about what is the fruit that we're supposed to bear. We are actually made. The human purpose is to be fruitful and multiply. And we talked about all kinds of different ways that that looks like. But how are we supposed to do that? And I like to think um, of Watchman Nee. He's a, a Chinese pastor who wrote a book, and it was called Sit, Walk, Stand, And it's based on the book of Ephesians. And if you read the book of Ephesians, it's very much patterned after this part of the gospel of John. But sit, walk, stand, or abide. Walk out what you've been abiding in. Be changed by Jesus. And take action. Stand. That's how we bear fruit. 
We have to be in an abiding or remaining relationship with Jesus. You can't be disconnected from Jesus and bear much fruit. You've got to be in Christ. The language we have here is the language of intimacy. It's a relationship. There's also a language of of permanence, of staying in him, being rooted in him. And it's the language of dependence, recognizing that I depend on Jesus as my justification, as my righteousness for everything. There's nothing I can do that's truly good without him. Now, a lot of people can do some good things, but ultimately, as scripture shows us again and again, ultimately, we're still under the curse and we cannot truly bear fruit without him. We depend on Jesus. So dependence is a big part of it. Specifically, one of the ways that Jesus says we remain in him is through his word. He says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And he also says, therefore, remain in my love. And so when you are dwelling in Jesus' words, when you have his words in you, there's kind of two parts to that. For one, it reassures us, it strengthens us, it nourishes us. We're reminded of his words, right? His words to them are, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Just as the father's word to him was, you are my beloved son, with which I am well pleased. What did the tempter try to do as soon as he got Jesus into the wilderness? Did God really say that you're his son? If you are God's son, turn these stones into bread. You know, kind of prove it, you know. Questioning that identity. What does God say about you? Dwell in his word. Go home and read Ephesians 1 and 2 and abide there for a while. Dwell on that because it will strengthen you. It will change your view of yourself, how God now sees you in Christ if you're in Christ. It'll bolster you up. You are seated with him in the heavenly realms. You have an inheritance. You have a place in the Father's household. You are adopted in, grafted in, in the same position as the honored son of the family unto whom all things are given. You have the uninhibited love of the Father granted access to the holy of holies, the place that people would only fearfully tread once a year and have to wear bells so that if they were stricken dead by the holiness of God, somebody could know that they're no longer jingling those bells and they pull them out by a rope. This is, this is where you're invited into because of Jesus Christ. The Father has initiated a relationship and wants you to dwell with him, abide with him, to be his honored son or daughter. And that's what we get when we get into his word. But the word also prunes us. It also challenges us. Because the more I remain in his word, the more I see things in myself that aren't in keeping with who Jesus is and who he has called me to be. And the question is, am I willing to listen to that? Or am I just going to gloss right over it? In the fall, when people prune their vineyards, it's drastic. They, they cut back almost everything except the bare vine itself so that it will bear more fruit. And sometimes abiding in Jesus hurts because there are things that God wants to cut away. There are things in my life that are hindering my Christian walk. There are things in my life that 
inhibit me from loving others as Jesus has loved me. There's a, there's a mindset that gravitates back to, uh, well, I don't owe them anything. I'm not entitled. I don't, I don't have to serve as Jesus served. Or, and these aren't just sinful behaviors to get rid of because you can get rid of all kinds of sinful behaviors and not bear fruit. This is about the stuff of my life, the patterns and the habits that I need to deny in order to be a fruit-bearing person who looks more and more like Jesus. And you can't get those things out of order. Because if you start with, well, I'm going to practice all kinds of self-denial and lop off this and this and this and this, well, then you're going to become this very proud person who looks down on everyone else, who doesn't deny the same things, views them as you know, worldly. You're going to think of yourself as some royal saint and not be very loving towards other people. So it starts with abiding. It starts with sitting. Stay put. And then walking. Letting the word do its work. Prune us. Change us. He says, to, uh, he says um, anyone who does bear fruit, the father prunes. The word is actually cleanses so that they'll bear more fruit. And then he tells the disciples, you are Cleanse. You are already clean. It's the exact same word that he uses for prune earlier. You are already clean because of my word that I have spoken to you. My word dwells in you, lifts you up, enriches you, and prunes you. Prepares you to be able to bear fruit. That, that's what he says. So abiding. Being changed by Jesus. Walking. Being pruned. And then lastly, standing or taking action. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Back in chapter 14, John makes three essential claims. One, that believers will do greater works than Jesus himself. Two, that they will do so by asking Jesus to do things appropriate to his name or identity and therefore glorify God. In other words, he's not saying, if you've got me and you've done enough good things, you can ask for whatever you want and I'll just give it to you. It's not a free-for-all. But he's saying you can ask, Father... Work through me to bear fruit in the life of someone else. Lord, that your will would come to fruition here in this situation, that you'd use me however you can to do it. Those are the kinds of prayers I believe that he's talking about. Prayers revolving around action, fruit bearing. And lastly, the commentator that I wrote said, or read said, that it's Jesus himself who's actually doing the doing through us. It's the life of the vine pulsing through us that produces fruit, not our own strength. And that's through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that more next week because that's heavily part of uh, chapter 16 there. Bearing fruit means keeping his commandments, that we love one another. So we've talked about what that fruit looks like. We've talked about how we bear fruit a bit. What's the result of bearing fruit? The result is, one, that God is glorified, and two, that our joy is complete. 
God's glory, your joy. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. God is glorified. John Piper puts it this way. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we find joy rooted in him, he is glorified because our joy is not rooted in something else. The results of remaining in the vine, of being pruned, being cleansed, bearing fruit, obedience to the commandment of Jesus is joy, not goading or obligation, but that our joy would be complete. Our desires are, are, are met. There's love that is experienced. There's fruitfulness and abundance being experienced. It's not just a duty or obligation, but blessing and abundance. It says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. So, the result of bearing fruit. God is glorified and you get joy. And lastly, the key that makes it all possible. The key is that God makes us not slaves, but friends. Not slaves, but friends. Greater love is no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And I don't believe he's saying, if you follow my orders, I'll call you my friend. No, I think he's saying, uh, those who follow my commands, uh, those who are my friends, the characteristic of his friends are those who obey his commands, that love one another as Jesus has shown love to them. Because the next verse says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. We do not bear fruit to gain friendship. Genesis 1 doesn't say, be fruitful and multiply and I will bless you. No, he says God blessed them, put them in the garden, gave them a feast, and then said, now go and share this. We do not bear fruit to gain friendship with God. We bear fruit because of our friendship with God, because of the joy that he fills us with, the purpose that we sense, the love that we have. What determines the friendship that we have with God? Jesus says, I've revealed through my word the revelation of my Father to you. I've brought you into my Father's business. You are no longer Servants who don't know what the Father's all about. A slave serves out of fear of the master. But a friend serves out of gratitude and love. We have that love because our master came down and took upon himself the consequence of our unfruitfulness. Do you remember what we said in Psalm 80 when we read it? Verse 16. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. 
We're friends because Jesus was cut down. He became Israel not only in what Israel was supposed to be, but in absorbing the punishment for what they weren't. He was cut down. Jesus went through the fire. Jesus took the rebuke of his father, and Jesus perished on a cross. But God's hand rested upon the man at his right hand, and he raised up the Son of Man for himself. Therefore, when we're in him, in the vine, when we're grafted in, we are not slaves We're friends. Stay put. Remain. Abide. Go to his word. Absorb what he says about you. Surrender to his pruning work that might cut and hurt, but it's worth it because it results in fruit and abundance and joy. Stay put and get going. Bear fruit. There's no such thing as a fruit-bearing vine without branches. Not that Jesus cannot exist without his disciples, but the vine metaphor does mean that Jesus has chosen to convey his life to the world by means of the branches. It's not about you. It's not about me, my agenda, my goals, my prosperity, my desires, because all of those fall far secondary to God's desires and his goals for me. And a vine that is a fruit-bearing vine that doesn't bear fruit has missed the point. So stay put. And get going. Abide and bear fruit. Let's pray. Father, um, as Phil said earlier today, it's easy to go on autopilot to hear those words that as Israel's vine, you took upon yourself the cost, the, the being cut off, the, the withering up, the burning, the perishing. You absorbed it all, everything we deserved, in order to open a doorway for your fruitfulness to go forth and multiply on the earth once more. So God, we want to be grafted into the true vine today. We want to receive the love you have for us and we want it to be real and abide in it and we also want to model it. We want to be part of a vine that is going out, creeping ever more, bearing fruit and filling the earth, deeply rooted and yet progressing, going forward. So help us to abide in you. And that the result, I pray the result of our abiding in you would be fruitfulness, love, sharing the abundance of what you've given us, bringing that abundance into every sphere of our lives, our workplaces, our family, everything. And it's in Jesus' name I pray.
Amen.